Now I'm looking at Gar's face 20 seconds ago. <laughs> I'm on delay. Yep. All right. Good old internet. So good. Welcome back, seekers of circularity. We're playing. We're playing with the words to see how they feel. Uh, I'm Samira Lakani, one of the hosts of Selling Circular. I come to you from Reaply, the world of Reaply. We are an enterprise and marketplace software tool for large organizations to track and reuse what they've already purchased. And I am joined by the greatest. I appreciate that. Uh, Gar Punnett <laughs> uh, of Loop Layer. Um, we are a uh, startup uh, focusing on rethinking, reimagining, remanufacturing revenue. And so we're, we're really looking at how do we actually help manufacturers with their product take back to really design zero waste revenue generation. Um, so it's a lot of buzzwords there, but I look forward to showing more people, having more people reach out and talk to me about it. Um, yeah, we got a good episode today. Uh, I'm excited to talk about the contract furniture world. Um, wow. Yes, uh, you and I are very involved in this world. We've, we've had an extensive research. Um, we have lots of uh, similar contacts. And it's a fascinating, fascinating world. Um, one that's both highly competitive and has so much potential for circularity. Um, we see that from everywhere in the workplace solutions realm, where Reaply's doing a lot of great work to some remanufacturing of, of furniture and where I'm starting to play a little bit of trying to help OEMs rethink how do they take products back and work with suppliers to get those products back into some sales channels. Um, what, do you th what are your thoughts on this industry? We had a great conversation with Andy and we'll get into that, but what has this been like for us in terms of really trying to dive into this industry? Wow. Well, I have a, a couple of interesting, or I don't, I can't say that they're interesting, uh, a couple of takeaways after getting into this world, which is one, I don't think I realized how often office spaces are redesigned, but I think it makes total sense because if you want employees to feel good about where they work, it shouldn't feel like the space around them is from 20 years ago. And so almost like, you know, keeping up with the Joneses and like the iPhone upgrades, there's a similar design um, ethos. The lessons in, mm -hmm. in that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. I, that's a great I, point. I don't I don't think I really realized that. The other thing I, I don't think I realized is how high quality and high value furniture is. Um I just, I never thought that a chair would be more than a thousand dollars, but it is. And because they provide high quality goods and high utility goods uh, to many, many people in the world. So there's high value and also high volume, right? Every, every butt has to be in a seat and yeah. at a desk and not every single one, but in, in the way that we work, at least in the U S here. And so that was uh, an interesting learning. And then finally, I think I didn't really realize before getting into this world how much the furniture world is kind of similar to the auto world in that there are dealers and distributors, um, which for a long time just didn't really make sense to me. So I was so curious to learn about the history of how that came to be and, and why that those relationships exist. Well, this is my, I'll then speak about my fascination with this industry is you have a to your point you have and I, I mean no offense to anyone who's listening to this you have both a very successful model but one that is candidly archaic in the lens of direct to consumer or direct to some client and so there's a dependency built in these models where you have a manufacturer that deals exclusively with some dealerships that then deal exclusively with some clients and ultimately in that drive a lot of value for those clients. Um, whether that's design, the sales component to selling new furniture, um, it's all about, to your point earlier, how are we getting people to come back to the spaces that they are working in, that they're collaborating in, and that ultimately, as you and I know, we spend a lot of time in these seats. Um, and so there's, there's this kind of personal relationship you develop with the seat that you have at your desk and the space of which you occupy in your office. Um, and so remodeling that, refurnishing that, uh, reimagining that, 
um, is is deeply personal. And and ultimately, uh, when you're introducing used items, and I'll say used because it is seemingly pejorative sometimes, but these are <laughs> remanufactured. These are perfectly good items when we're talking about circular options. Sometimes that is uh, emotionally complicated, and people might they, they might spend all this money, but ultimately uh, have a little bit of a reaction sometimes. Um, now, what I'm fascinated by in this industry is the amount of furniture manufacturers that are in the United States still is something I did not quite know until I got into this industry, mm. which is you might have the top 20 furniture manufacturers, contract furniture designers that are based here in the States. Not only are they based here in the States, they're in Michigan. And Michigan being that heartland of manufacturing and ultimately, you look at that industry and you think, wow, there's a lot of jobs here. There's a lot of resources that are being dedicated to furniture. Now, how do we actually help actually increase the impact of that by bringing more circularity to that industry? And I think that'd be pretty powerful. And that's where you and I get very excited about these spaces, these furniture uh, solutions, and what we're trying to do to help solve that. So in your mind, Gar, how far has the industry come in terms of thinking about circularity, what have they tried? You know, I've heard some examples of furniture companies designing chairs well so that they can be disassembled and reassembled or replaced parts. I've heard of some companies potentially trying some take back programs where, you know, when we hear about success stories in the world of circularity, we hear a lot from the space of fashion. And that was one of our earliest episodes. But yeah, where 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 is the furniture industry in their journey? Yeah, you know, furniture furniture is fascinating in that way because uh, they have they've tried a lot of different models. Um, the holy grail model, and I, I'm speaking just for myself. Others in that industry may not feel that way. You may also not feel this way, but the holy grail model probably is that product as a service model, and ultimately that has been tried to the degree of success of which it was successful actually remains kind of a myth to me, maybe an, even an urban legend. I haven't been able to quite get to the bottom and the, and the kernels of truth into why this isn't a more prevalent type of model. Mm -hmm. um, the product as a service model being that people are paying a monthly fee uh, for the maintenance of their furniture, but they don't necessarily own the furniture. And I do believe we get into this a little bit with, with Andy. Um, ultimately, um, you know, we've seen different successes and different failures of different models, but it's hard to say that anything has been successful because we keep doing the same type of selling large amounts of furniture, paying millions of dollars for furniture, and then rehauling that entire project uh, on a cycle of maybe seven years. And what we actually come to find out is Andy drops an even more surprising number in the episode coming in the interview coming up. So we learn a little bit more about how that number has been lowered from a seven year refresh to lower. I'm teasing it. Go, go listen to Andy. But ultimately, um, you know, what we've seen in the industry is these different success models pop up and then maybe not be as prevalent. But the core of this is that they create amazing products that last. And so it's because these actually are products that are really well made, um, designed and built um, with varying degrees of, of, of American engineering and manufacturing that these are high quality items. Um, and that's where I'm fascinated by this industry. And, and we keep kind of sharing the fascination with how do we then take those long lasting items and make them take another journey around another, another use instead of being thrown out. If we actually, there was a popular article that came out uh, from the New York Times, you might remember this one, where they were talking about uh, the amount of furniture that was being thrown out in New York City. And that during the pandemic and as a result post-pandemic, you had 70 million um, square feet of, of office space that was being now unoccupied that was all filled once with furniture and furniture furnishings. Um, and that was all being not all of it. I'm not going to use that so so categorically, but a lot of it was being tossed. Now you have other companies that are coming in and salvaging those and then remanufacturing them and then selling them back into the market. And that takes us to who we talked to today, which was Andy. And we got to really dive into what that 
meant to be a what that means to be a company that's focusing on actually how to create a business model around that remanufacturing. And and there are successful successful companies that do this. Envirotech is not the only one, but we got to really dive into it today. Um what where did that leave you? Where did this interview actually take you in terms of really being uh reinvigorated in into this industry as well as seeing okay, we've got more barriers ahead. Well, one thing that stands out is that he told a story, and I'm excited for you all to hear it, that gave me hope around how, by interacting with one of his customers, they were able to change the way that uh, RFPs are run. And that's really like getting into how do you navigate the status quo and push the envelope in the status quo with your existing customers to get them to maybe change some of their processes yes. that might lead to more circular business practices. So that was really exciting to me. Um, and I think that, you know, that change is totally possible. And even when you were talking about product as a service, it, it immediately brought me back to, again, my time in my, my time in India is very formative for me, but I knew that I wasn't going to live there forever. And I managed to, as a retail customer rent, a chair and a desk because I knew that I didn't want to buy it and I didn't want to sell it. And so I paid a monthly fee to keep a chair and a desk in my room at home. And then when I was, when I left the country, I returned it. So I I think it's, it's totally possible that the models are possible. Um, And I don't want, I don't want to come across a situation where we, we at Reapley, we came across in our own office building, which is air on chairs right? Worth more than thousands of dollars were being thrown out. And we hustled our team to run downstairs I, and get them before they I got love that story. I mean, this is, yeah, this is deeply personal to me because it was my younger brother who yeah. I remember was coming into the office and saw in the dumpster, these, to your point, $1,500 chairs being thrown out. I mean, I say $1,500 is a ballpark, but it's roughly that. Um, and he just excitedly was like, hey, we have a problem here. This is like literally happening in our building. And this is at the time, this was this was when I was working there. It was, it was Reapley's mission. It still is Reapley's mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was just that excitement, though, is is what Reapley gets out of that. It's what he saw in that. Um, and you all were able to save I mean, there was something like 20 chairs were sitting in the office um, ready to be reused. And some of them were perfectly mm-hmm. good. And I think what the issue there is that, like, what can we how can we design our systems, our economic yes. systems, our business practices, our decision making so that that is not a situation where it is a an afterthought where it's just right. going to be thrown out and it's on somebody else to figure out what to do with it. Uh, so really the pressure is both i think on the manufacturers and on the buyers to figure out together how can we do this better so that we're not throwing really quality goods straight in the landfill there are more conversations to have about office furniture we get into it a lot in this episode andy was a joy to talk to uh he really opened up to us about what it's like in the furniture industry Um, We got to throw some challenging assumptions his way. He got to return back with some of his experience and what he's seen and then what we all believe in is possible for this industry. Uh, Enjoy the interview. It left me on a really hopeful tone of of, there are people out there, there are procurement solutions changing, um, there's companies really addressing this this waste flow. Um, Please uh, reach out to us, reach out to Sabira or myself, um, and we're happy to connect you with any of these companies. And we look forward to getting any of your feedback on these episodes. And we'll see you guys on the next one. We already did one of these before. So at this point, um, this is the, the fun part. Um, this one could be more controversial, though. It's been a whole a whole couple months and the world has changed. Like, let's, just, let's just get yes. punchy and just start throwing some punches. I, I, I like it. With that, with the, the controversy, then I'm okay. Let's start this way, which is the industry is in a really interesting place right now. Um, And we're talking about the office furniture world um, and our relationship to our offices, our relationship to the places that we work have changed. What have you seen in that relationship shift in the last three years? I mean, that's evolutionary, right? So there's probably different points that you've seen, but we're in post-COVID world. What are the differences you're seeing these days from 
your side of the office furniture manufacturing world? So from my side of things, I thought three things were going to happen when COVID hit. I thought that either it would completely redefine offices, which it hasn't yet. Okay, I thought that we would never go back to the old floor plates, let's say of 2019 or 2018. That didn't happen. We're, we're, we haven't evolved that far. So furniture has not changed that much. The spaces we're designing have not changed that much. The thing that has changed is how frequently people are talking about return to the office and, and having these conversations in some way go nowhere. Um, that has been the major change that I've seen. The only other minor change is, I think, what we're all involved in, which is circularity has become much more of a discussion because office leases now are three and a half years on average, which means the cycle of refreshing those spaces and trying out new ways of work is happening more than ever before. And that is going to lead to a lot of waste. Help educate the audience real quickly on what it was before that. Um, in terms of leasing spaces? So the average lease, let's say pre-COVID was I think eight and a half years. Um, so big, going big up difference, to 20, yeah. Going up to 2019, it was getting shorter and shorter as we were, ex especially in Toronto and other areas experienced that tech boom, right? And the tech boom was you'd have, uh, you know, company X lease out 5,000 square feet and then grow to 30,000 square feet in six months. Right, and that created a uh, market for flexibility and for furniture solutions that could grow as rapidly as the tech companies were. Uh, but overall, I think the averages were still around five to ten frequently. And can you share and paint a picture for the audience what the role of designing spaces and furniture, like what, the person who's thinking about that intersection? What, what does their world look like? And now that the time horizon has changed from maybe 20 to eight to three and a half years of the lease time, like what is their, how has their world changed? So I don't think, unfortunately, that, let's just say the interior design community is thinking about length of lease because it's really not their domain. It's, it's really not. And the problem is, I don't think the client is actually thinking of it as well, because there's this understanding that, oh, I'm sure there's going to be a market for getting rid of my furniture at a value down the road. Um, it's not happening currently, and therefore, I don't know for sure if it'll happen in the future. But right now, in terms of design, they talk a lot about flexibility within spaces, right? Um, building products that have some reconfigurability, adaptability. Um, and that is very subjective into what type of reconfiguration you're talking about, right? Because I'm not seeing that any different than how we were building place, uh, spaces in 2019. So I don't know the exact type of flexibility that they're talking about in some cases. I, I think there's also a part of this, and I, Sabir, I love that your question led me to this, which was, we're always talking about incentives. And there's a lot of blame is such a harsh word, <laughs> but I, I, for lack of a better term, there's always people pointing fingers mm. and saying, oh, this is where circularity can happen. This is where sustainability can happen. And I think there's enough of that to go around in the entire industry for all of the major players, whether it's uh, who owns the space, leases the space, designs the space, is providing a service to create a circular offering for that space. But the incentives to your point, Sabira, then become, okay, is a designer incentivized to care about the lease length? And really, they're not. It's probably not built into their mindset of saying, oh, they're going to put a great product forward and they're going to say, hey, this is going to be an amazing space for the time that you'll want to occupy it. And I'm going to make it so good that you're going to want to come back to me in, in the next three and a half years when you're ready to, to make a new space. Um, and so there's there's ultimately a little bit of a, of a design incentive um, that has to be now baked into how the client cares about maintaining that, probably that space. Um, what do you all, what have you seen that sort of adds to that incentive to say, hey, this is how we care about circularity 
and how we're going to try to design this so that you can now care more about this maybe, or you can say, Hey, this is what we've done to put our foot forward to say, Hey, we care about circularity. We care about sustainability. Well, there's a number of things that we've done that have not been received by our clients as well as we thought they would. So one of the best approaches, in my opinion, is to transition into some sort of a furniture as a service model, right? Because when a client doesn't own that furniture, then they are not stuck with what to do with it two weeks before they're about to move out or a month or whatever it is. Um, and the person who's putting that furniture in there, let's say it's us, is only going to put furniture in there that we know we can reconfigure in a way that is going to be, let's just say, uh, reused or remanufactured um, for a future market. So I originally came up with the concept of doing that for the work from home explosion that happened in COVID, um, where it was a subscription model for organizations to get home office furniture, ergonomic home office furniture for their employees, um, but not be committed to owning that because my concern, well, remember when they said that COVID was going to be over in two weeks or whatever? Remember that? Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know I if do you remember that great period. <laughs> well, I was, I was thinking, well, what about if it is over in a month and everyone's buying all this furniture or taking all this furniture for their homes? And a lot of people have small condos and things like that. It's all going to be tossed out, right? People are going to buy the cheapest thing. and It's all going to end up uh, in a landfill when they go, I don't want this taken at my kitchen. I don't want this taken at my space. So why not have organizations essentially have a service model where we take that product back and then repurpose it in the office. People didn't want to embrace that. There's still this level of economics and ownership that I'm sure we could dive into, you know, um, further, but it's been a challenge to integrate these type of new ideas in a, in a industry that is very set in its ways. And to your point about the interior design community, right? The fact that we have leases um, and turnover of space that is rapidly accelerating, it's not bad for business. It's not bad for certain businesses, right? And that's going to eventually be um, something to deal with because it's like, oh, I can redesign that space in three years. Oh, I can release that space. Oh, I can sell you new furniture in three years, right? It's not that you're calling me up 10 years later and I'm, and I'm you know, working at figuring that out. That's challenge too, right? Is figuring the economics. And I know, Gar, we've had many discussions about this, but uh, yeah, that's an interesting time for that. Tell us about the status quo because, you know, for audience members who aren't, who are hearing about furniture as a service, but don't know the world of furniture, what does it look like today? How are clients interacting with whoever they're purchasing furniture from? What is their relationship? Yeah, so to be clear, we aren't doing a furniture as a service model right now. The status quo of new furniture procurement is client leases a space, um, a designer um, or a project management group would do a design of that space, outlining where those furniture pieces are. And then typically it gets brought to three new furniture dealerships who sell new furniture products. Um, they all put forward what their best version of a how adjustable desk is in a private office. And a lot of it's very similar as you can probably imagine. Um, and then that project is awarded based on either price or relationships and the story goes on and on. And essentially that client would then call a sustainable decommission partner or whatever other means they use to get rid of that furniture when they're ready to vacate that space um, in the years whatever that is, well, you know. And I like what you glossed over there, which was they could call a sustainable disposition partner or what we've saw and what we've seen be reported on is a hauling company, some sort of uh, dumpster, or yes, they could be a donation partner too in there as well. Yeah. I mean, the best way I like to explain it to clients who, um, don't understand, well, why wouldn't you always call a sustainable decommissioning partner to take care of your furniture? It's because imagine taking apart anything, like something in your house, basically, that you're going to reuse. It's going to take a lot more effort, a lot more you know, manpower, a lot more expertise 
to make sure that you're taking that thing apart correctly so that it can be repurposed. Much easier to go through with you know a sledgehammer and just destroy the whole thing and throw it in a, in a box, right? And so again, economics uh, ruling in that case, it's cheaper to just take the sledgehammer right now. Well, that plays directly into what Sabir and I have been talking about for the last couple episodes, which is deconstruction of homes and how much, again, it comes down to planning. It comes down to the economics and there are incentives that help uh, make that decision. But you do have to care. You do have to know what to Google almost. You do have to know what to who, how to have that conversation and then be able to plan ahead enough ahead or far enough ahead of time to be able to do it successfully. Right. What's that like? on being a, a, a sustainable decommissioning partner in that way for someone? Well, I think what partners like, so, so I, I, I consider the different lanes that everyone is falling in in terms of solving the furniture waste problem, problem there now. There's different lanes. There's the sustainable decommissioners, the green standards, the CSR eco solutions, that, that type of lane, right? There's asset management lanes, which will solve it by planning ahead and knowing exactly where everything is so that it can be repurposed. That's the Reapley type of, of lane approach. There's liquidators who just look at reselling product, you know, from point A to point B. Um, and then there's new furniture dealers who are selling it with some sort of ID. They sell new furniture like normal, right? Saying that nothing changes, the status quo doesn't change. We sell new furniture like normal. We just track it now so that hopefully it can be repurposed in the future. Then there's remanufacturers. So what was that, five lanes that I, that I put forward there? And crushed so those it. Are, those are all the just lanes came. that you can basically run down to solve this problem. The problem is all of them are operating independently right now, trying to solve the same thing, but all doing it differently, making it complicated, costly. Um, and, and that's, and the problem is, is definitely what I think the asset management of replay is trying to do. Most people do not know what they have and when it's coming available. And that is such a huge problem that you just wish you could scream to organizations from the top of a mountain being like, why? Why is this not so clear to you that I can't do anything with your product, you know, in two weeks from now, you're vacating three floors, you know, of, of furniture. Like, why can't you understand that? Um, understanding that first and foremost is going to be crucial to get solving that furniture waste problem. However, we're not just going to get there by selling new furniture like normal on every project and tracking it and hopefully, again, through asset management, finding a, a home for it down the road. You need to also create the market of where that product is being resold. If the market doesn't exist, then you're not going to have the actual avenue. It doesn't matter that you know where it is, it's that no one's taking it. And there's you know, there's only so many charities out there and Good Samaritans who are just going to store it in their warehouses. <laughs> You've got to have a market for it. The, on, and on, on, on my end, then, I mean, what this comes down to is, uh, to your point, is the market. Um, yeah. I was in a great conversation with, uh, with someone actually this week of talking about... Um, this is my controversial opinion is uh, that the floor of, well, let me put it this way. Right now, so much, so much furniture sometimes is valued as nothing. It gets, mm -hmm. it gets depreciated off the books from an accounting perspective to the point where it has no book value. Um, my potentially controversial opinion in this is that is completely artificial. So, uh, a chair has value if one can sit in it. A chair has value if it is still comfortable and, and performs to the function of which it um, it is expected to function um, or even exceeds that function. And there are great remanufacturers out there, you all, including some other ones, that are able to restore furniture back to even a potentially even better function. Um, but ultimately, some of this is, is an artificial price floor that could be substantiated by original manufacturers or some sort of basic buyback option of which you all do provide in some instances. Um, but that is, again, it's, it's that, um, 
there's a subjectivity to that. There's a, there's a, like almost a, a, it's only, you can only do that when you have the end market set up for getting rid of those chairs or a client is willing to buy them back once they're remanufactured. And so you, right. you have to go through that, that, that process of setting up that end market in order to provide that value for those chairs. Help me in my controversial understanding there. Am I on point? How far do you think I'm off? Um, where, where am I sitting on that? Well, good to end with where am I sitting on it with the chair example, but <laughs> exactly. That's the right point. <laughs> um, okay. So I don't agree with your concept that if a chair is comfortable and you can sit on it, it has value, right? Okay. Here's why, because let's just take office chairs, for example, right? Office chairs are typically used within either a home office or an office setting, right? You can't just necessarily put them in everywhere in the world where there would be a chair, right? Right now, there are too many office chairs that are being, let's say, not needed, okay? Yeah, there's a glut. Not, not enough that are being put even into new spaces. So it doesn't matter that you could sit on the thing. It's that there's no economic value because no one's buying it. You still have to, to or sorry, not even buying it, using it. Using it. There's not enough butts for seats um, available. Yes, just to yeah, make it blunt supply and demand. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, that could change if, and this is what we're talking about, the marketplace, right? So right now, you'd have to, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but um, let's just say there is no requirement for reuse or remanufacturing in new right. furniture tenders, okay? V very rarely we see that. I mean, we've been in this and, industry and, for 27 years, yeah. And I wanna make sure this is clear, tenders being also known as an RFP, which is an a RFP, request for proposal. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. just wanna make that clear for people. So for those listening that don't even know what a request for proposal is, it's, a, it's um, essentially a solicitation from a company saying, hey, we're looking for offers to perform this type of function we're looking for. Wanted to make that clear. Thank you, Andy. That's it. And so imagine, let's just take um, a federal government for now, who is a large procurement power and choose either the Canadian one or an American one. I think you guys are doing better than us, to be honest. But take a large procurement power that is buying rare. a substantial amount of, let's just say, product, office furniture in this case, which is happening. If the requirements on that request for proposal are new furniture only and meets whatever these certification checkboxes that it needs to meet are, right? Then you're not going to see that transition of butts and seats of a pre-owned seat happening, right? You need to have the market of where it's going into um, to start, whether that's 5%, 10%, 15%, 20% of a new fit out incorporate some sort of reuse, there's going to be economic value on those chairs again, because people are going to try to resell them to capture that part of the market. And I made this clear to an international design firm that was looking at solving the furniture waste problem only through effective asset management, which hmm. I still think is impossible, or sorry, I still think is, is important. But if you just have asset management, and, there's, and you're not rewriting your tenders to say that there's 20% reuse that we require on all of our projects, there's going to be no place for those to go because the new furniture will keep crowding it out. And so that is how you drive changes through procurement and through rethinking the status quo of what is now, which is checkboxes on the sustainability um, metrics that products meet. And we can get into that, which I think is also important in terms of controversial views and where the problem lies in terms of how we view sustainability in furniture and, mm -hmm. and interior spaces. And before we go there, I'm curious what, what you think the why is behind um, organizations in their RFPs describing or prescribing that the solution has to be new furniture. Because if they're saying it has to be X specification, it could be fulfilled in new or like, what? why do they say even new to begin with? What do they get out of that? So a part of it is, I think, a stigma and a mentality and how we view products. There's definitely that. And I try to always pull myself out 
um, and think about things, you know, so we recently did a bathroom renovation in my house, okay? And there was new components that we obviously had to put in there. But being me, um, I remember them saying, well, just get a new toilet. The toilet, you're redoing the bathroom, just get a new toilet, start fresh. And I said, the toilet's fine. We don't need a new toilet, right? Looking at Amazon, when I had to get the, the new shower, it was like, okay, they have a used option on there. Now, the warranty part is a little scary when you do certain things like that because is I don't want to do my plumbing again if I buy a faulty shower unit. And so there's skepticism, skepticism in terms of is the product going to work? But I think the biggest thing for furniture in offices is I'm spending millions of dollars sometimes in fitting out a new office with brand new flooring and everything, you know, offices, every, all that stuff. And now you're saying you want me to use pre-owned furniture in it? Not seeing where this is going to line up. Why would I? Why would I skimp out now when I'm already investing in all these new materials? That is, I think, a big issue. Is that it's it's looked at as less prestigious, as especially with organizations who are bringing in big clients and wowing them with big deals. It's like, oh yeah, did you know this is a pre-owned boardroom table? It's like that's not you know the the flashiness that we know back of in 80s wall street i guess you know but that that's that's a challenge right is that you've got to think of the the mentality of of um of what organizations might be thinking and also what designers are thinking in terms of achieving their design they have an idea in their head that a pre-owned product is going to look like something you see on the side of the road right or a remanufactured product and so it takes a lot of education and a complete rethinking of sustainability, let's say, in the built environment um, to actually drive that change forward. Well, can you talk us a little bit about then the remanufacturing process, which my, my assumption is that you can remanufacture products in a way that doesn't look and feel like it's second life. So what does that look like? And is that possible and how then do you sell that as it's just as good as new? Absolutely. Remanufactured furniture and workstations, office furniture in, in, in particular, is a big market for the most part. It's, it's a fairly big market across North America. Um, there's lots of players who remanufacture traditional, let's say, cubicle workstations because that was typically the biggest component of a project um, for the last, you know, 30 years or so, right? Up until very recently, it was maybe 70% workstations, cubicles, maybe 30% meeting room, private offices, things like that. So people invested in trying to have a competitive advantage on winning projects through remanufacturing a product that the core of it, the steel, right? The, 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 the core materials could easily be reskinned, repurposed, refreshed, reconfigured so it was like new. That's why a lot of organizations like our own 27 years ago focused on this is the most expensive part of a project typically. Um, it's the most carbon intensive for sure in terms of the amount of you know raw material extraction needed for all the steel, aluminum, all of those things. Um, and it works well in terms of basically we can turn a product that might be 20 years old into a brand new looking product right? Because externally, we give it a facelift and maybe resize it and reconfigure it to make it modern. But internally, nothing's really changing, right? Um, and so, so that's why there was a huge focus in remanufacturing on traditional workstations. The big challenge with remanufacturing now in the workplace is that, as you probably know, 50% of the product might be workstations. A lot of it is not panel-based workstations. It's a lot of laminate. Um, it's a lot of freestanding tables and things like that. And a lot of ancillary, lounge, collaboration, foam booths, right? All those types of products are now taking up a majority of the way that we work. And so remanufacturing is going to have to adapt and figure out a way that we can repurpose the millions of tons of existing materials that's getting thrown out every day, basically, because it's not the new way of work, figure out a way to turn that into the new way of work. Yes. And, and some part of that 
involves resiliency and shifting operations um, on the on the part of everyone in that ecosystem. And part of where I'm I'm always fascinated by is again this kind of is that chicken and the egg scenario, which is is it up to procurement to design that tender or that RFP? Is that up to um, a designer to to really push for for that decision making? Is it up then to you all as a remanufacturer to say, hey, this is as good as new, and to really make that argument in your RFP to say, hey, we recognize that you didn't have this, but this is the added benefit that you will have if you go <laughs> remanufactured. Um, right. I'm curious why you laugh at that because I think that that speaks to <laughs> then the job. tension. I know exactly, but that speaks to the tension then of you all having to make that argument um, and to really put that forward in every in every proposition. Um, am I off on that? I mean, where where's the tension in that where you think, yes, that's my job, of course, but not everyone does that. Why is that so unique and so special to make that argument? I guess I laughed at it because that is day in, day out what we're doing on proposals. They'll say, we want new furniture, and, and then we're saying, this is a better option, not just economically. It's the same thing you want, basically. It's just coming from pre-owned sources or remanufactured from pre-owned materials. Every single time, though, it's a convincing sales process of, I know you're not used to this, but we've done this before. It works. Like I know it's it's scary. You don't understand where we're going to get all this stuff from, how we're going to put it all together, what the warranty is going to be. I know that, but trust me. So that's why I laugh is because I'm trying to think of another sustainable product that's that much of a knockout. Like imagine Tesla was right. just like, hey, our cars cost like 30% less than like your, your standard gasoline, you know, Toyota, whatever car. And it's, you know, delivered right to your door. Like, would, would it need that much convincing? I, I don't know. People, if people are like, oh, I can just put solar panels everywhere, drive, you know, electric vehicles, and it's and it's 50% less than I was paying for my gas-powered vehicle, seems like a no-brainer to me. What's the catch? It, it absolutely is a no-brainer. And the fact that you all aren't batting 100% at every pitch speaks to, again, that, that massive um, preference curve that says that's used. And it's like, yeah. no, it's not. It's, it's, it's remanufactured. It's perfectly good. It will compete on every level. In fact, it will do better on other levels of, again, as you said, cost and carbon footprint. Um, and so it's just astounding. And reporting from another, a couple other industries, there are very successful industries that have been able to uh, get over that. But it took 40 years. Like it took a massive amount yeah. of time for everyone in the dealership network to the clients, to the salespeople, to everyone to understand, oh, no, this is perfectly good. And it will not only save us money, it will help us decrease our impact as an association, as an organization, and ultimately make that purchasing decision. So I, I'm only pushing this as hard because I know that the laugh was filled with, of course, this is our job, but it comes from saying, y'all are on the winning side a little bit too on this. I mean, this is, this is the future is, is saying, Hey, this is where these decisions will start to go as more governments, more organizations, um, more clients, and even consumers are pushing in the direction of decrease this impact through policy right. or purchasing decision. Yeah. And I think the, I always reference sometimes the automotive industry because I think there's such a parallel with where we are in remanufacturing in the workplace in that, we didn't start with Teslas. We didn't start 100% electric. We started with a hybrid solution. We started with Toyota Priuses. And there was that, not just a stigma in terms of this was kind of an ugly car. It was, how far is it going to go? Am I going to run out of, you know, right. chart? Like, what's going to happen, right? It's like, no, no, we're not going to go 100% electric right off the bat. We've got to get people used to understanding what a hybrid solution looks like. As soon as there is a market for hybrid, which is what we do for the majority of our projects, right? We do a blend of remanufactured, certified, pre-owned, and new together under one roof. As soon as there's a market for this hybrid, now all of a sudden you can start to invest in innovating more and more towards fully electric or fully remanufactured or you know reused products, right? But you have to start hybrid. And that's and even though we've been doing this for 27 years. It's like we're just starting because there's organizations who are finally understanding sustainability in a different way. 
And that's the exciting part that we're in right now. The challenging part is, um, is yeah, where to go from here. Well, I think I, when, when y'all are talking about this, I also think it is also a matter of the market, right? We heard in our one of our previous episodes with Elon that in Sweden, once upon a time, it was uncool to be rich. It was poo-poo to faux pas. So we're in this market where being rich and having the new fancy boardroom table with a fancy chair is what the client craves, right? That's what they want. That's how they can show their success. And that's a matter of culture. That's a matter like we're all high on capitalism. And if that maybe were different in the U.S., perhaps we could have jumped the line of the Prius and have gone to the Tesla if, you know, if we if the collective mentality was ready for it. Mm. Interesting. You're right. I think there is I think there is a shift in generations happening in terms of what they're valuing in in the story of the products that they're using. Right. Um, I think that, that that I even noticed that. Yeah. I noticed that shift even in myself of saying that it's like things are not built to last anymore. They really aren't. It's this real struggle. It's like every time if you need to buy a new appliance, you're like, this thing is not, if it was made in the last 10 years, it's like this thing's going to fail, <laughs> right? Whereas then you see I, other people and they've got products that have lasted them 35 years, right? If it was made in an era where they made things well. Somebody, somebody was telling me this. It could have been you. I cannot remember. But we were, they were talking about how they were getting a new refrigerator um, or some sort of new appliance. And the, the salesperson, which I completely commend, whoever that was, recommending the new appliance to them said, hey, if it's smart, I would stay away from it. Like, go with something that's dumb. Go with the dumb <laughs> appliance. Um, and, and it was like, that, I, I, that is so wrong true for me now to say, like, I don't, it's not that I'm trying to be sort of anti-tech or anti right. sort of future smart technology. No, it's just that there's, there's more of an ability to count on the basicness of what that function is rather than all the bells and whistles, which might just throw some components off. And so that's, it, it is, it, it speaks to, again, the, the way things can be built and the way things can be constructed um, also makes it easier to remanufacture it and to make, to take something back, to take it apart and then put yeah. those components back together for a great functioning product. Um, talk us, talk to us about some success stories. Um, because I think this is where we kind of come to that point where people are like, okay, we know the system's broken, but ultimately give us some, some hope here. Um, this might be Sabira's running segment of hope on this show where she looks towards the shining light. Um, what are some of these success stories? Yes, there is hope. There is, there is hope. I am excited for what the future holds. And one of the, uh, you know, most inspiring like, success stories as an industry uh, that interior designers get inspired project managers, other organizations are getting inspired about was the Kraft Heinz fit out for their new Canadian headquarters we did this past year, which was 55,000 square feet that redefined furniture procurement in the, uh, let's just say, decarbonized built environment era that we're entering into. And they started with the status quo because they didn't know, right? It was starting status quo. We've got all of our um, new vendor options. We're going to put together a competitive bid for new furniture only. When the designers recommended that, not just for budgetary purposes, but part of their sustainability strategy could be incorporating more remanufactured and pre-owned products into their project, they were, I don't know if they were skeptical or not, but we got a chance to bid basically. And what we were able to put forward, especially in today's market, was a significant cost savings on our first proposal, um, almost 300000 400000 off of the original new furniture price for realistically a better product overall, a high-grade steel case, Hayworth, Herman Miller product um, that was blended in with new furniture that we didn't, you know, we couldn't source as a pre-owned option. They awarded us the the contract just on that first opportunity. But this is where the procurement model changed. And ask me any questions if this is not becoming clear because it was such a radical change in how they procured furniture for this. Again, at the beginning, we probably had 30% remanufactured, repurposed product incorporated. 70% was still new. 
all through us, but we didn't have options at that point in November to fit hmm. out the rest of the space. But then they suggested that, well, it's November. We don't have to pull the trigger on the new furniture, which typically carries a lead time of, you know, 10 weeks or so until February to meet our timeline More for time. Why More don't time. you now, now that you know exactly what we want, go and source as much remanufactured and pre-owned product and swap it out as possible. That resulted in 70% of the project being repurposed, um, remanufactured, certified pre-owned with a cost savings of almost a million dollars compared to their original budget. And a, a, you know we're, we're submitting this project for awards because it looks incredible. And I'll send you, I don't know if you can share on here, but um, yeah, you can share photos. No, yeah. uh, we'll do it in, in edit. Yeah. So we'll put oh, it perfect. in edit. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send you what the, uh, what the space looks like. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. Um, and it just hopefully will be that inspiring factor for interior designers, for other organizations to say this is possible. It just takes a little bit of planning. Also, you know, people are like, how hard was that to source all that? How much time was invested by the designer? Our team does all that. We did, we, it was a lot of work. I'm not going to lie. It was a lot of work. It was not the status quo. We learned a lot. There were challenges, but that's the only way you're going to, you know, that's the only way you're going to create change is by struggling a bit and figuring this out on the fly. And yeah, it was a, a heck of an experience, and I and I hope that it will kind of be the new way, at least that we look at low carbon furniture procurement or sustainable furniture procurement moving forward. Because too often we're thinking about things that don't have an impact on climate change at all. That speaks to you all created the market. They gave the yes to you all creating the market. They were the, almost the they were the source and end market for that opportunity Correct. to source all of that material and those products correct yeah it was a fascinating process of you know finding an like for example they had about 300 lockers originally that were on the um the proposal and they were all new and then but we knew the exact size the color all of that that they needed to get and then it was a process where they had 48 hours once we found the the, the product to decide if it was a go because then we had to buy it immediately right as we know, some of these clients are getting rid of product in a week or there's other buyers who are looking at it. And so we had this really interesting process of it's like, we found it, we can sub it out. Yes, go ahead, boom, sorted in our warehouse, ready to be installed day one. And it was like, wow, this is a cool way of doing things. It works. Cool. The system it works. works. And, the system yeah, works. And, and, yeah. and you all made it happen. I'll feel, um, I'll feel less bad when eating Kraft mac and cheese now. <laughs> they changed the, they changed exactly, the ingredients and that's exactly what they want to hear too so that's that's remanufacturing <laughs> because they did their office i'm now going to go buy some more macaroni and cheese that's yeah, it right there yes. um, andy um thank you so much for joining us here today uh taking us through what was what is and what can be i think what really can define this space for for furniture remanufacturing um uh, we look forward to you almost reporting back on more of these success yeah. stories in the future let's hope i think that will be a, a fun conversation to have you know in a couple months from now as we start to really see what this experiment is of return to work that we're that we're doing i think that by the end of next year we're gonna we're gonna know pretty pretty quickly what um, what the world of work is gonna look like. We're still in experiment phase, and we're still in experiment phase in terms of what is sustainability in these fitouts. We're gonna know a lot in a year, and um, it's an exciting time. I always love chatting with the both of you, and so thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, this is great. Well, we know this podcast will be here in a year. Sabira and I are committed. We're going hard. So excellent. Yes. Thanks, Andy. All right, Thanks, guys, Andy. Take care.